You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. Good morning. Our scripture this morning is from John chapter 4, verses 27 through 42. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor." Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world." Well, hello and good morning. So, we are taking the next three weeks to pause and pivot and focus on what the Lord is calling us into for this year. This is a vision series for, the tw- for this year, 2023, and as you know, this is like the next passage that was up in John, but I chose it because it kind of was perfect for what we're talking about today. So, we're not in the John series, we're preaching from John about our vision for this year. So, I've heard it said that a vision Vision is what you see when you close your eyes. So vision isn't something that you can always articulate, but it certainly is something that you can imagine. So when I think about Citizens Church, I think about how many passionate, gifted, and well-positioned people that we have here in this church. I can see us, I can envision us sitting down with friends, talking about Jesus. I can see us as confident, spirit-filled as we move into darkness and lostness, I can see us as a community of people who are radical in every way, radical in commitment, radical in generosity, radical in hospitality and diversity and confession and love for one another. We here have the potential to be a highly effective missional church. And the reason I think why we haven't hit our potential yet I'm optimistic about us doing so, but the reason why I don't think we've hit our ceiling yet is because we haven't paused and focused on the essentials of being a missional church. What does that look like? What does that mean for us here, Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland? So that's what we're spending the next three weeks talking about. We're going to reset, come together, and think through what it means to be missional. And of course, the first thing that we're starting with is evangelism. We have to be evangelistic if we're going to be a missional church. Now, if you're a believer here, which is most of you, when I say that, that we're going to focus on evangelism today, you all you start getting anxious. I know. You start getting a little anxious because evangelism is hard and awkward and weird and uncomfortable. But I hope, my hope truly is that today relieves you of your anxiety and gives you optimism, and gives you hope, and gives you confidence as we head out into the world. Now, listen here, I just want to take also a moment and say this. If you're not a believer, and you're here today, this sermon, it's like you're getting, getting an uh, outside, looking in, conver- uh, scoop on, on a family conversation here. Like, this is a family conversation for those of us who call Citizens Church their home church. So if you're here and you're not a believer, a lot of what you're going to hear today, it's like you're on the outside looking in. But I want to pause and say this. You probably are thinking to yourself, evangelism, or, you know, these people sharing their faith, that emphasis. And you think to yourself, 
Why can't you just keep it to yourself? Why do you have to emphasize this? Why does this have to be something that you focus on in a whole entire sermon, a part of the practice of your faith? Why do you have to share your faith? Why can't you just keep it private? And I just want you to realize that every single person, believer or not, is going to share their position, is going to be sharing, verbalizing what they believe to be true. Even you saying, why can't you just keep it private? is you verbally declaring what you believe to be true. <laughs> and so everybody does this. Everybody talks about what they think is the good news. Everybody's going to talk about what they think is the right way to live, okay? And so <laughs> for those of us who are believers and, and we're focusing on evangelism today, we want you to know, person who's seeking, person who's, who's on the outside looking in, we believe that we have the best news of all. And if you don't remember anything else from the sermon but this right now, that's okay, we believe that we have the best news because what we have in Jesus to offer you is real, true salvation, real, true second chance, real, true, the free gift of eternal life. We offer you hope in Jesus if you turn and trust in him and give your life to him. And so that's what I want you to hear today. This is what we believe is the best news of all. So Jesus, I think in this story, that John records for us, has a model of evangelism. He presents to us this model of evangelism, and it's going to do two things for us. It's going to challenge our hesitations, and it's going to offer motivating perspective. It's going to challenge our hesitation. It's going to offer motivating perspective. That's what we're going to cover today, okay? So with that said, let's go ahead and bow our heads and ask the Lord to teach us and be with us right now. Father, you are creator and you are beautiful, and you are worthy of everything, and you are glorious. We just want to first and foremost acknowledge who you are. You are amazing. And God, we want to live for you. We want to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. We want to live a life that is worthy of the call that we have in Christ Jesus. We want to reflect you, God, to the best of our abilities. We want to declare how amazing and wonderful you are. We want to declare with boldness the hope that we have in you because you've changed our life. And so, Father, I pray that today you would teach us and instruct us, that you would give us a vision for what can be achieved if we trust you and follow you, if we allow you to instruct us and, and follow your lead. And so, God, be with us. Be with me as I teach. Let this be a day truly that causes us as a church to pivot in a new direction and be more faithful to you in our mission to reach the lost. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So Jesus' model of evangelism. First, it challenges our hesitation. So the first thing I want you to think about here as we get into this passage and analyze this passage is that this is meant to be critically read. Uh, John here is not simply just writing a story, but John is writing literature, which means there's purpose and scheme and, and uh, intentionality to everything he's doing as he's recording this story that's unfolding. And if you don't read it critically, if you read it uncritically, then what you're going to see is that this is kind of bad storytelling. If you notice when Don was reading, it starts with the disciples then it goes back to the Samaritan woman. Then it goes back to Jesus and the disciples. Then it goes to the Samaritans. It's like this disrupted, uh, it's not a very uh, a free-flowing story. It's very disjointed. So you need to ask yourself when you come to this account, why is John presenting it this way? This isn't uh, easy to read. This seems rather disjointed. That's not on accident. That's on purpose. So what does John want us to see as he goes from disciples to Samaritans, back to the disciples, back to the Samaritans? What is John getting at? And the conclusion you'll come to is that he does this in order to present a contrast between the disciples and the Samaritan woman and the Samaritans, between the disciples and Jesus. He wants us to see this repeated contrast between the people who, of all people, should get it, the disciples. The people of all people who you would think wouldn't get it, the Samaritans. There's this contrast at play that we're supposed to see, and it's going to tell us something about evangelism. So let's go ahead and read verse 27. It says, Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said out loud, 
What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? They marvel. Why do the disciples marvel here that Jesus is talking to a woman? It's because it was against custom to speak to a woman in public in this time, especially about theology, especially if you were a rabbi like Jesus, especially if it was a Samaritan, and especially if it was a woman like this who had a reputation, a poor reputation. So the cards are stacked against her, against the situation. The disciples come in, they see what's happening, and in their minds they're thinking to themselves, what is he thinking? What is he doing? And notice they don't say anything, they don't speak up, because deep down they likely know that if they were to confront Jesus and challenge Jesus on this, he would absolutely level them for their cultural bias. But in their minds though, in their hearts still, they question, why in the world would Jesus do this? <laughs> what Jesus wants to do, what Jesus' mission is, what he's interested in, it's not even on their radar, okay? Not even on their radar. They are so blinded by their cultural preferences, their personal preferences, that they can't see what Jesus sees. Keep on going. Look at verse 28. What immediately follows this? So the woman, the Samaritan woman, that woman, left her water jar and went away into, a t- into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Okay? Do you see the contrast between the disciples and the woman? It's clear. Here is a woman who is freely talking about Jesus and inviting people to him. And here are the disciples who can't imagine why Jesus would even talk to this woman. What's going on here? Before we answer that question and make any conclusions, let's let's look again at verse 31 at the disciples. They say this to Jesus. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Rabbi, eat something. Now, remember the story. At the beginning of John chapter 4, Jesus is alone at a well, and it says that he is wearied from his journey. He's exhausted. He's hungry. And now we find out why he's alone. The disciples were nowhere to be found. They weren't at the well. Where were they? They were out getting something to eat. And they were not going to the the closest town of the Samaritans to get something to eat because Jews don't share common dishes with Samaritans. They were going to the next town that would have kosher food for them. That would fit their personal and cultural preferences. So we find out why Jesus was alone. It's because they had other business to be about. They had other focuses. They had other priorities. Again, their minds are on different things. They missed this entire interaction with this woman because of their personal preferences. So on one hand, we see the disciples possess cultural and personal hesitations, and we see the woman and Jesus release cultural and personal hesitations. And as a result, what happens? The disciples miss out on participating in Jesus' mission, and the woman... The woman, yes, this disreputable woman gets to participate in Jesus' mission. She's drafted into it. And you would think it would be the opposite. You think Jesus' students, his best friends, those who walk with him every day would get this. And you would think the Samaritan woman who, there's animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. You would think she'd be the last person to get this, yet here she is inviting others into life in Jesus. Now, what's the application for us? Okay, When we hear about evangelism and think about evangelism and know we're commanded to evangelize and yet we don't do it, there's surface reasons for it, which is like this. Uh, I don't have the time. I don't have the energy. Or I'm doing enough for Jesus already. I can feel good about not doing that one thing because I'm doing these five other things over here. We have all these surface excuses that we bring up for why we don't share the gospel with other people. But really the excuse behind, or the reason behind the excuse, the thing underneath the surface is it's just not a priority. We have, like the disciples, cultural hesitations because it's weird and awkward. And we have personal hesitations with sharing the gospel because it's uncomfortable and because it will cost us and because it requires us sticking our neck out and taking a chance and saying something. We, just like these disciples, don't participate in Jesus' mission 
which is going forward, and it's happening, and it's triumphant, we can get on that train. We often miss it, though, because of just simple cultural and personal hesitations. Now, if you're anything like me, this is convicting and stressful and makes me feel like a little bit of a loser because I know I don't do this enough. And that's why now we're going to transition to the hope Jesus offers, the optimism Jesus offers, his vision for evangelism. I'm so thankful for what he teaches here because it's so liberating and empowering and stress-free. So now let's look at how Jesus presents to us what evangelism is and offers us a motivating perspective. So look how Jesus responds to these disciples who don't get it, who are not involved, they have other priorities. He tells them how to think through their hesitations. He tells us how to think through our hesitations. Look at verse 32. But Jesus, he said to them, remember they said, Rabbi, eat something. He says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Now remember, I want you to remember this. Back in verse 6, Jesus is wearied from his journey. He's no doubt physically exhausted. He's no doubt hungry. And the disciples say, here's some food. We know you haven't eaten. We got something for you. And Jesus replies and says, I'm full. I'm good. I've, I've already eaten. That's what Jesus says. Now, why would Jesus say that? What's the explanation here? What, what's what Jesus is trying to, to, to teach us? Verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food, my sustenance, what fills me up, okay, what rejuvenates me, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. <laughs> Jesus is saying to his disciples, just as it was your personal preference and priority to go get food, my personal preference and priority is to accomplish my mission. And when I am accomplishing my mission, this is Jesus. Jesus is saying, when I am accomplishing my mission, that's what gives me sustenance. That's what gives me energy. That's what keeps me going. And notice, details are important. Here in verse 34, Jesus says, it's not his mission. It's not his task. Whose is it? He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Jesus was sent by God and tasked by God. So when Jesus is having this conversation with this woman at the well and inviting her to have life in him, he's fulfilling his purpose. So much so that Jesus compares it to eating a meal. And remember, he's weary from his journey. So Jesus is quite literally saying that just as you would be rejuvenated by a meal, obeying God and fulfilling his purpose is what rejuvenates him. So what does this mean for us? Jesus was sent and Jesus was tasked. And we are no different friends. We are sent, we are tasked to do his mission. Now, I don't know if you've ever shared your faith before. I don't know if, if you can remember the last time you had shared your faith with somebody else. But when you do, okay, when you take that chance and just like stick your neck out and just say something, Okay, when you take that courageous, bold step of faith, there's a thrill to it, isn't there? There's like this spike of adrenaline that happens afterwards where you feel really good about things. You feel like, oh my gosh, like cloud nine, high octane. Why is that? Why is there this thrill that we feel when we share our hope that we have in Jesus with other people? It's because, listen, there's something deeply powerful, deeply existential about standing on earth as a bridge between heaven and earth, okay? When we share the gospel, we are giving witness to the great cosmic truth of who God is and who they are. We are witnessing, we are giving witness to what we have come to know, and we are now letting people in on the secret that saves and makes sense of all things. When you evangelize, it's like you're this tether between heaven and earth. It's like you're this human bridge that invites people back to relationship and fellowship with the divine, with God himself. That's why there's this thrill. There's this adrenaline spike. Man, I am standing on earth inviting somebody to relationship with heaven. 
Now, let me get theological here and have some fun, okay? It says in Genesis 1 that God created man and woman. He says in our image and likeness. He says our image and likeness. And on one hand, I think that does reference the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that we are uh, made after that pattern. Something about the Trinity, we, we resemble it. It's, it's ingrained in us. But actually, we, we find that out later on, of course, as, as progressive revelation occurs. But the earliest readers would have understood the hour that Jesus is talking about, the plural, to, to reference the divine council. What's something called the divine council? God uh, in the heavenly courtroom is surrounded by angelic beings who work with him to accomplish his work. That might sound weird. It might, that's, that might be something you've never heard before. Go read Psalm chapter 8 on your own later. It's there. So, Jesus, or, so God is saying when he creates us in his image and likeness that we're created to represent and be sent on the behalf of literally heaven itself of rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, in the divine places. That's our purpose, to represent the, the divine, to be a tether between heaven and earth. And then when God says, go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, exercise dominion over it, he's commissioning us to go out and do just that, to spread heaven's authority all over the globe. So quite literally... <laughs> You are built for this. You are wired for this. To stand on earth and represent heaven and invite other people back into fellowship with the divine. That is what we were created to do. And so when Jesus, of course, gives the Great Commission in Matthew 28, if you grew up in church, you know this. It's, it's classic. It's popular. The Great Commission. He says what? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them, I am with you always to the end of the earth. When Jesus is giving that great commission, you need to understand that Jesus is not doing anything new there. He's not uh, um, doing anything novel. What Jesus is doing there is he is rebooting the mandate that was lost in the fall. Jesus is recovering our purpose as messengers and giving it back to us. Adam lost that in the fall. We have, since the fall, never been able to represent, never represent God well and stand as that tether between heaven and earth well until Jesus comes and says, I'm sending you on my behalf. I'm recovering and restoring to you what you were built for, to stand on earth as a tether between heaven and earth. So you're built for this. There's no way around it. Therefore, directing others to God, it's not a burden, but a joy. Because it's actually the pathway to fulfillment at a deeply existential and natural level. And it's so natural to us. We were obviously built for this because we do this all the time. We live as messengers, as advocators between two realities all the time. Think about sports. Okay, you got some some sports fans in here who are kind of annoying about your teams. Well, I get to be annoying now. It's 6.30 tonight. I'll be glued to the TV watching my hometown Bengals play in the AFC Championship. And you know why there's a sense of pride and a sense of energy as to say that right now? Because I'm standing between a host of people who are going to root against them and my team, and I'm saying I'm boasting in them. I'm representing them. I want you to direct your eyes to them. We, <laughs> we do this naturally, Okay. We cheer, applaud, defend, represent our teams because there's something in us that longs to stand before the world and boast about what we deem to be great. So as ambassadors for Christ, and that's what you are, we are redirecting our energies that we put into commending sports teams and commending politicians and commending people. We are redirecting our energies into commending Christ. So God's sending of us and tasking of us, just like Jesus was being sent and tasked, it's not meant to burden you. It's not, friends. It's meant to complete you. This is what you were built for. It's ingrained in you. You're going to do it anyway. Do it for something that matters. Do it for something that's eternal. Do it for something that will outlive you immortally. So Jesus, he's flipping evangelism on its head, okay? You're built for this. It's not a burden, okay? It's a joy. It's something that's going to that's gonna resonate with you at a very, very deep level. 
But now Jesus flips it on its head again, okay? So Jesus, in his teachings, he's in an agrarian culture, of course, and he often uses agriculture as a way to teach us spiritual realities and spiritual truths. He often says, hey, look at how things are as they play out uh, in agriculture. That's how the kingdom of God is. That's what Jesus often does. But here in this passage, what he's going to do is he's going to say, look at how we typically think of agriculture, the harvest, the fields, gardening, working the soil. Look at that. In this instance, he's going to say, the kingdom of God is not like that. Let's go ahead and take a look. And as we do, we're going to see that Jesus flips our pessimism about evangelism into optimism, and he corrects our false idea of success. So look at verse 35. He says, Do you not say, and notice there are quotations on this. It's a common saying in the day, apparently. He says, Do you not say there are four months? There are yet four months. Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So the phrase, there are four months left, then comes the harvest. It's a common phrase that means something like Rome wasn't built in a day or slow and steady wins the race. The attitude, okay, in this culture is just wait, the harvest is going to come to you. We've done the work, we've prepared the soil, now we just sit back and wait for the harvest to come. But Jesus is saying, forget about that. Forget about everything you've ever known about the harvest because that will do you no good when it comes to participating in my mission. He says, forget that. Instead, look up and see what I see. He says, the harvest is white now. It's ready now. It's occurring. It's already upon us even right now. So it's purposeful, okay? Jesus is using this well-known, assumed reality, this strong way of thinking in his day, and he uses it to correct our way of thinking. They assumed that we just wait for the harvest to come. It'll come when it's ready. It'll be seasonal. And Jesus is saying, that's our mindset when it comes to sharing our faith, when it comes to thinking about the spiritual harvest. We often just sit on our hands and think, it'll come when it comes. It comes every now and then. It's seasonal. Jesus is saying, "Mm -mm. look up, lift up your eyes and see what I see. The harvest, it's already here. It's not coming. You don't wait for it. It's already thrust upon you now. See, we don't share this optimism that Jesus has because we don't see what he sees. If you're Let's just think about this for a moment together. When I tell you, hey, try this week to share your faith, if I were to say that to you. Who can you share your faith with this week? Your mind is going to immediately think to yourself, they don't want to hear it because, uh, you know, they're cultural elites. They think that religion and faith is silly. They don't want to hear it because they've suffered a lot and because they don't think God is good. They don't want to hear it because uh, they don't know me that well and they would think it was weird. You know, we come up with all these reasons why it's not going to go well. Why that conversation will be totally fruitless. Jesus is challenging our pessimism and saying, I'm already at work. I've chosen people. I'm already drawing people. The soil of people's hearts has been tenderized and prepared. I am at work all around you. The harvest is right now, not later. Do you believe that? That God is at work all around you. That there are people that, that God has placed you in their path. You, not someone next to you, not someone across the, you. You have been placed precisely where you're at for such a time as this because the harvest is here. And so Jesus wants to challenge our pessimism. We think it's not going to go well. We think it's going to be in vain and futile. Jesus is saying, look up, lift up your eyes and see what I see. And this is why 2 Corinthians 5 says we live by faith and not by sight. If we live by sight, you know, based upon our own wisdom, our own own understanding, our own schemes, then we have every reason to be pessimistic. (laughs) But if you live by faith trusting and believing in Jesus' perspective rather than yours, then we march into the harvest ready to reap a harvest because he's already at work, he says. Lift up your eyes. See what I see. It won't be in vain. It won't be futile. So we should refuse to view the world in such pessimism. I know we think, ah, the world is going to 
to hell in a handbasket. Do people say that here? That's a southern thing. But, but we, we think these kinds of things so pessimistically. But Jesus is saying, I am already at work, and I'm inviting you into this great harvest. So, instead of pessimism, optimism. But now, okay, Jesus, he gives us a different idea of what success is in evangelism. It's not what you think. Verse 36, it says this, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So what's, what's Jesus teaching here in this verse so far? That when we lead someone by the hand out of darkness into light, when we lead someone to Jesus, we are storing up for ourselves eternal fruit and reward. Okay? The one who reaps is gathering fruit for eternal life. So what does this mean? Okay, we talk about reward in heaven, fruit, spiritual fruit, eternal fruit. What does this mean? I think there's a few different ways to answer that, but let me go ahead and just give you one answer that I love. I love this this hope we have, this reality that is waiting for us. If you were to go to Luke 16, I'll just tell you what it says. Jesus teaches this parable of a dishonest servant who is cunning, who, is, uh, who schemes in a way to advantage himself. And Jesus commends that servant for his shrewdness, for his cunning tactics, because it worked to his advantage. And here's what Jesus says. At the end of the parable, he says, the master commended the dishonest servant for his shrewdness. And now Jesus explains why that's so commendable. I love this. For the sons of this world, of this world, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails you, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. What Jesus is saying is the world is so cunning. The world has all these schemes and they use it to their own advantage. And Jesus is saying we should take a page from their playbook. We should be a little bit cunning, a little bit thoughtful, a little bit uh, tactical for the sake of the kingdom of God leverage whatever we can. Here he says unrighteous wealth, meaning there's no moral value in money itself. There's no moral value in, uh, in your kid's soccer game, uh, in lunch during the weekday. Leverage everything you can for the sake of winning friends for eternity. That's what Jesus says. And he says, when you do that, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. That, friends, is the spiritual fruit. That, friends, is the reward that awaits you in heaven. A long line of people welcoming you into glory who you played an essential role in helping get there. A welcome line, celebrating together God's grace and saving you and them and using you to do so. But look what Jesus then says next. We keep on going in verse 36. He says, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Now, Jesus is doing something really countercultural in this phrase because sower and reaper in this time were pitted against each other. They did not work together. They, in fact, had animosity towards each other because the sower is the one doing all the work and the reaper is the one who benefits. But Jesus is saying in the kingdom of God, not so. In the kingdom of God, there's no competition. We're on the same team. There are people who sow the seed of the gospel over and over in a person's life until the day where God appoints one person to enter in, have that conversation, and that person who they're talking to goes from darkness to light. And Jesus says that is why we all rejoice. He is flipping that concept on its head and saying there's no competition. The sower and reaper are on the same team. Look at verse 38. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. We all rejoice, sower and reaper, because we all played a part in the harvest. We all played an essential role in this harvest being brought about. So the eternal fruit that wage that the reaper receives, it's to the credit of all who have come before, who, will, who were faithful to sow and sow and sow. So really, 
in eternity, there will be two lines of people. There will be the line of people, the friends, who welcome that person, who help them all meet Jesus. And then there's going to be another line of people who that person, who reaped, who helped people meet Jesus, there's going to be another line of people who that person is going to thank. Because those people are the ones who sowed and sowed and sowed and sowed over and over until the day where it came to fruition. So when you share the gospel, you might not convert someone on the spot right then and there. You might just be sowing so that others reap. By sharing the gospel, you are integrating yourself into a long story of redemption, and you may not know the conclusion of that story until you wake up in glory. So in sharing the gospel, you are joining a legacy of people who have made the same bold and courageous decision to share the gospel, and Lord willing, sower and reaper will rejoice together. So do you, do you see what Jesus is teaching here, the vision he's presenting to us? It's not on you to convert that person right there on the spot. I mean, if that happens, praise God. That's what God had appointed. But it might be your job, your duty, to also just be the sower until the day it comes to fruition. Pressure's off. Okay? Success in evangelism is not results. Success in evangelism is faithful obedience. That's it. You can walk away knowing that you have pleased your Father who has sent you and tasked you if you are just faithful to sow. <laughs> Let him take care of the rest. Let him take care of the results. And I want to dramatize, not, I want to give the full scope of this because look what Jesus says uh, in verse 38. He says, I sent you. Now, who's he talking to? The disciples. He's talking specifically to his disciples right now. He says, I sent you, disciples, to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Now, he's saying to his disciples that they're going to reap, that they're going to see this harvest, but they're standing on the shoulders of everybody who has come before them. And again, we're reading this story, and we realize it's disjointed back and forth between disciples and Samaritans. So John, immediately after this, records what happens with the Samaritan woman and the Samaritans. Let's read it, 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. She said, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. What's happening here, in these Samaritans coming to faith in Christ and acknowledging him as the savior of the world is the fulfillment of centuries of Old Testament prophecy. That through the Messiah, all nations would be blessed. That through the Messiah, there would be no temple. All nations would stream to Zion, which is him. Okay? There's been this anticipation, this mystery throughout the whole entire Old Testament story that all nations would be invited to be a part of God's covenant people, not just Jews, but all people. And that's what's happening right now. So quite literally, Jesus is saying to his disciples, you are about to witness the harvest. Participate as reapers in this harvest that has been in the works, sowed and sowed for literally centuries. Generations before you have sowed and labored so that you can come in and reap the harvest now. And so literally... When you share the gospel and somebody comes to faith, that moment where heaven is breaking into earth and they're reconciled, that moment could have been in the works for literally generations. Small movements over time that, that gets a family and people in that family closer and closer and more and more willing to hear what you have to say. And when you share the gospel and they don't convert, they don't listen, they, they refuse it for that time, you might be starting a seed or deepening that seed into that family that might come to fruition in generations from now. So truly, success in sharing the gospel is not on seeing results right then and there because God plays the long game. The harvest is something that's been in the works for a long time. And that's what he's inviting you into. So truly, 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 pressure's off. 
And so we come with these excuses, like, I don't know enough, I'm not smart enough, or uh, uh, they won't listen to me, or I'm not going to get it right. Don't sweat it. You don't have to. God's the one who brings about the harvest. He's just calling you to sow. And then let go, and let those results be up to Him. But friends, this is what He's inviting us into. We will not lose, and it's not in vain, because we either sow or we reap one of the two, and nothing else. So obedience is the measure of success in evangelism and leave the rest to God. So I hope you see that Jesus presents to us a model of evangelism that isn't stressful. (laughs) It doesn't create anxiety. In fact, it empowers and liberates us to be even more faithful, pressures off. But (laughs) so he's challenged our hesitations. He's challenged them. He's given us a model of evangelism that should liberate us and empower us to step into the harvest. But friends, now we have to step into the harvest. We have to see what Jesus sees by faith and, uh, and walk boldly forward. And so now what I want to do is I want to end just throwing some tactics or throwing some um, strategies at you that you can equip yourself with as you head out into the harvest. Okay, and that's how we're going to close. I just want to give you some, some things to, to implement into your life. So first, Saturday at 6.30, we have evangelism training here. 6.30 to 8.30, and I don't want you to miss it. God's calling us to step into the harvest and be missional as a church. So we're having somebody who I trust and think is very, very skilled and experienced at evangelism who's going to come and train. And so be here Saturday at 6.30 to 8.30. I'd love to see you here. Some other things, though, okay? Some other things that uh, I have trial and error done in my own life that I hope is helpful to you, okay? So throw out some bait and see who bites. Throw out, I want you to write these down if you're writing stuff down. These are tactics to implement into your life. Throw some bait out and see if they bite. So if it's true that God's already at work, the harvest is upon us, the Spirit is already drawing people to himself, if that's true, then throw something out and see, see who God is drawing. Throw something out and see if someone's curious or if that's attractive to somebody. And so I have an advantage here because I'm a pastor and people ask all the time what my job is. And I say I'm a pastor. And so like I have the easiest foot in the door to talk about Jesus with people. So I know I have it easy. But here's what I was thinking, okay? You know, Jesus says you should be cunning and shrewd like the sons of the world. And leverage every opportunity with whatever schemes you can come up with for the sake of the kingdom of God. So we have to be creative and thoughtful about how we're going to share the gospel. And so my advantage can actually be your advantage. What if when somebody asks you, hey, what do you do for work? What if you said something like, you know, by day I work in IT or by, you know, I, uh, I'm in the military by day. But really I just, my main task in life is I serve my, I serve my church. Uh, my main passion in life is to help people in, in the church that I'm in. Start doing that. Start throwing out that kind of bait and see who grabs on. And listen, that shouldn't be weird. Like that, that presentation and understanding of you as a missionary, that shouldn't be weird because that's how Christians should consider themselves anyway. That your career really is not to be a photographer or to be in the military or whatever it may be. Your career is to be a missionary and you're just funding it with your day job. And so throw out some bait and see who bites. Um, I like to often invite people to church. If it seems like someone's talking to me, I, I sometimes just try to bring up church and see what people do. And sometimes it's positive and people seem like they're interested. And I say something like, you should really come. I think you'd like it. I try to be warm, optimistic, look them in the eye and give them a genuine invitation. Sometimes people are, <laughs> don't, don't respond well. Sometimes people shrug. Sometimes people turn away. And if I have the opportunity, I try then to slip in there a question like, what do you think the church could be doing better then? Or I'm just curious, what's your hang-up with church? I'd love to, to hear your thoughts on that. As a pastor, I'd love to learn from your experience. As a Christian, I'd love to learn from your experience. You just never know if you're going to be the reaper, but you certainly know you're sowing. And so throw out some bait and see what happens. I also like to, in the grocery checkout line, just try my hand at some things sometimes and say quick things like, when someone asks me how I'm doing, I say, I can't complain, God is good. Or when my kids are with me and they're stressing me out, I try to uh, present it more optimistically and say, children are such a blessing. (laughs) But it's like I use that word blessing because people know that, oh, he must be religious. 
Or if they ask what I'm buying the food for, I'll say I'm buying it for Bible study this week. So I just try to find innovative ways to throw out bait and see who bites. And I trust that God's at work. And if it comes back with nothing, that's okay. I'm just putting a rock in their shoe. And it'll maybe hopefully make them uncomfortable. So when the next time around comes, they're more willing to hear it. Okay? Another thing that you should do. Offer to pray for someone. So I had a contractor at my house a few months ago, and we were talking, he was working, and uh, his wife was in the hospital, and I chickened out. And what I should have done in that moment is said, hey, can I pray for you and pray for your wife? Would that be okay? And he would have said yes. I chickened out, though, and I was too busy, and I was stressed, and I had to get to other things. I regret that, but I'll never do it again. I'll never miss that opportunity again. When you have the chance, just ask if you can pray for somebody and see what happens. Another thing, um, serve and explain. See a need, meet a need, and then tell them why you did it. So a few months ago, somebody walked into Starbucks where I was at, and they were going around asking for money. And I walked up to that person, and I said, hey, do you need some food? And he just, I, want, I just want a cup of coffee. It's cold out, I just want a cup of coffee. I don't have any cash on me. So I said, sure, come on. So I bought him a cup of coffee, and we're standing in line waiting for it. And I turned to him, and I said, hey, I want you to know why I did this. I did this because God has loved me so incredibly by forgiving me of all my sin and my mess-ups, that I just, I want to show that same love to you in a practical way. It's not anything, it's not rocket science. Uh, it's just, are you willing to go ahead and just ex- give an explanation for why you're doing it? And again, you never know where that person's at. If they're going to be receptive, if that's going to make them take one little step further towards Jesus. You never know. Another, position yourself. In other words, make yourself indispensable in another person's life. So position yourself. For some of you, this does not need to disrupt your life. There's already natural rhythms in your life that you're with other people or you can invite people into. You eat dinner every night. You can invite someone to eat dinner with you. You're driving your kids to that place where there's going to be other kids there. Look, God's not necessarily asking each and every one of us to totally... uh, (sighs) you know, disrupt our life to share the gospel. Sometimes it just means leveraging the positions you already have. But for some of you, uh, you do need to rearrange your life so you can have more interaction with people. And don't be a weird introvert. When someone invites you to hang out, say yes. That way you become a part of their life. Okay, make yourself indispensable. Make yourself an attractive presence in another person's life. And like God, trust the long game because you never know. Second to last, and I think this one's really important because your neighbors and your friends do not share the same presumptions as you about life. When they hear you talk about doctrine and Jesus, um, they're going to say, that's good for you. I'm glad it works for you. But, you know, what works for anybody is fine. <laughs> it's, we don't have the same common ground anymore. Okay? It's cultural common ground with our friends and neighbors. And so what you need to do, I think the most effective way sometimes to get people to take a genuine interest in Christ is to share your story. Because in your story, when you actually open up and talk about what Jesus has done in your life, how he has healed you, how he has giving you a second chance, how he continually walks with you. When you share your story, there's something about a person's change and transformation that is undeniable. That oftentimes is better evidence than biblical manuscripts and the resurrection and all these different proofs that we have. People don't really care about that, but people do care about your story, and they can't deny that experience. And so share your story. You have to share what God's doing in your life. Because they'll listen to that. That's attractive to people and powerful to people. Lastly, and this is meant to be the wrap-up of everything. How are you going to get good at sharing your faith? How are you going to get good at preaching the gospel to other people? Do you know how? By preaching the gospel to yourself all the time. The best way to know how to apply the gospel to your hearer in a way that causes the seed of the word to penetrate a little deeper, is by applying the gospel to your own hurts and wounds and doubts and worries over and over. 
when you're, when you're good at applying the gospel to your own soul, you'll be pretty skilled at applying it to other people's souls. So if you want to be equipped, skilled, and confident in sowing and reaping and entering into the harvest, friends, it's not complicated. Preach the gospel to yourself, to the deepest parts of yourself over and over, and you'll be well-equipped. Confidence, though. Confidence. I think that's the hardest part about evangelism. I think most of us know what to say, but it's a matter of, how am I going to do that? It's so awkward, and uh, everyone's going to judge me, and oh, I feel weird about it. So that's the biggest hurdle here. So how do we get over that? You know, I, I love talking about my wife because I love her. I love talking about my girls because I love them. I love talking about my church because I love, I love this church. When you love someone, it's so easy to talk about them. It's just natural to talk about them. So if you want to be a faithful sower of God's word, preach the gospel to yourself in a way that reminds you of how good, beautiful, delightful Jesus is. Fall in love with him over and over. Delight yourself in him. And I promise you, talking about him is going to be as easy as breathing. And that's it. So friends, there's a harvest. God is calling us here, us passionate, well-positioned people in here to take a step into the harvest. And that's where God's leading this church. Will you come with us? Will you come with me? This is what God's calling us to. And all we need to do is preach the gospel to ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, we know that you are calling us to a task that is too tall for us on our own in our own strength and our own wisdom. So we ask, Father, that you would do a miraculous, supernatural work by your grace and catapult us, Lord, into the harvest. You are worth it. What we have is true. We have everything we need. And we are confident, God, that you are already at work all around us. And so, God, help us to be faithful. Help us to be bold. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.